0: This is the Project Upland Podcast, presented by Onyx Hunt. On this episode of the show, we talk about a recently released book for rough grouse and woodcock hunting enthusiasts with author Tim Flanagan. Welcome to the show for episode number 99. Podcast is presented by Onyx Hunt, creators of the most comprehensive digital mapping system for hunters. Use the promo code PUP20 to save twenty percent on your Onyx Hunt subscription today. And by Yukonuba Premium Performance Dog Food. Out in the field, how you prepare determines how you'll perform. With balanced fat and protein to support peak condition in your bird dog, Yukonuba Premium Performance Dog Food enhances strength, energy, and endurance. So when that tailgate finally drops, you and your dogs are ready for anything. Strong, focused, ready for anything. That is a Yukonuba dog. And by Gumleaf USA, high-quality, handcrafted, premium rubber boots that stand the test of time. I love my Gumleaf boots from Gumleaf USA. I've got a couple pairs of them. I've got the Vikings. I've got the Viking Techs, which are a little bit lighter weight, perfect for this time of year. I've been wearing them every day. Head over to GumleafUSA.com. Use the promo code PUP10 to save 10% from Gumleaf USA. And by CC USA Shotguns, shotguns designed with the Upland Hunter in mind from the Bob White Sharp side-by-sides to the wing shooter elite and upland ultralight over and unders they've got pumps they've got semi-autos cz usa has a shotgun for you head over to cz-usa.com to find your next bird gun and by Turnbull Restoration Company, the most recognized name in antique and vintage firearm restoration. They've been doing it for 35 years, and if you want to see more about what Turnbull Restoration could do for you, head over to TurnbullRestoration.com forward slash Upland to see a photo essay documenting the entire restoration process of a Parker shotgun. That's TurnbullRestoration.com forward slash Upland. And finally, by Dakota 283 Kennels, kennels built to last a lifetime, one-piece mold design. Design, frame steel door everything you and your dog need in a kennel for a safe and successful hunting trip find out more about dakota 283 kennels and the rest of their products by visiting dakota283.com all right this week's winner of the podcast giveaway is levi d levi left us a review in the itunes app for that we thank him project up the t-shirt headed his way very soon anybody listening could be next week's winner of the podcast giveaway all you have to do is make a meaningful contribution to the show you can leave us a review in the podcast app like levi did you can leave us a rating subscribe to the podcast share the podcast send us some feedback or a guest suggestion we'd love to hear from our listeners email me at nick.larson@northwoodscollective.com. at northwoodscollective.com all right, another reminder for the Public Grouse virtual tour in partnership with Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, X Hunt, yukonuba the Project Dublin original film, Public Grouse, goes digital in early May. Head over to Backcountry Hunters and Anglers' website to get all of the details and purchase your tickets today. Don't miss it. It's only going to be online for a limited time, so if you didn't get a chance to see it locally, now is your chance. All right, on today's show, I am joined by author, photographer, grouse and woodcock hunter, conservationist and just an all around passionate guy, Tim Flanagan. He joins the show to talk about his recently released book, Grouse and Woodcock, The Birds of My Life. I've got a copy of it. It's filled with Tim's amazing photography of grouse and woodcock. It's also filled with his lifetime of knowledge pursuing, photographing and studying these birds. I had a great time chatting with Tim. You will learn something about grouse and woodcock today and if you are a Grouse and Woodcock enthusiast, you're gonna love this podcast. So with that said, let's jump into today's interview. Welcome into the conversation and on to the Project Upland podcast, Tim Flanagan. All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Project Upland podcast. Today, I'm joined with a very interesting guest who has a new book on the market that I've had the chance to get my hands on, take a look at. It is both mentally stimulating and visually stimulating. Tim Flanagan, welcome to the show, and thanks for joining me on the podcast today.
1: Thank you. It's an honor to be with you.
0: Appreciate that very much. I'm really excited to have a conversation with you Tim, about much more than your book. I, I can tell by you know our conversations over the past few weeks and reading what you've written in this book that you and I could could definitely, we could chat for quite a while, and, and we, we've already done that a few times on the phone, but you've got essentially a, a lifetime of strolling around through the grouse woods, chasing these two birds that you are super passionate about. You capture them via your photography. You write about them. You've got a serious passion for Rough Grouse and Woodcock, wouldn't you say, Tim?
1: Yeah, they've, they've been my life, and the, the subtitle reflects that. That was uh, the publisher, Tom Parrow. Actually, this book was his idea, and the subtitle, The Birds of My Life, was his idea, uh, because that's it boils down to that's basically what it is, a lifetime of pursuing grouse and woodcock and studying and photographing them and and appreciating them
0: we're definitely going to talk more about the book a little bit later but i do want to i want to give the audience a chance to get to know you a little bit tim and i want to learn a little bit more about your background Uh, i've been reading about it but of course it's always more fun to actually hear it straight from the source could you tell me what was your introduction to upland hunting like where did you grow up i mean where did you grow up where did you start chasing these birds how did it begin for you tim
1: I grew up with a, as a single parent child with a granddad who loved to hunt. Uh, he was an upland bird hunter for most of his life, but when I became of age, uh, twelve years of age, and legal to hunt in Pennsylvania, he had uh, become more of a rabbit hunter because his legs were, wouldn't take the, the upland hunting as much. But uh, we we uh, hunted rabbits uh, heavily in cutover areas, and in the process, we often shot grouse and woodcock. And I uh, I shot my first grouse with a single shot, 4'10 at age 12, and that's been uh, several decades ago. And I shot my first one on the wing at age 16, and our granddad was a tremendous wing shot. And when I shot that grouse, some of the most memorable words I ever heard was him saying, wow, what a shot. <laughs> <laughs>
0: That's funny you mentioned that, Tim, because I jotted that down from reading the book. I jotted down that I think it was like back-to-back sentences. You said you shot your first grouse at age 12 with a single shot four ten, and then you shot your first grouse on the wing at age 16, implying that that first grouse was shot on the ground. And I, I had to smile because I've told that story or this story on the podcast before, but I like you and like many others, shot my first grouse standing on the side of a forest road logging trail in northern Minnesota with a single shot 20 gauge. You know, very, very similar story. And and honestly, I probably shot my first grouse on the wing ab- about the same time you did, probably 16, 17. I remember we had flushed a couple of grouse off of a road and didn't have a shot. We chased them into this dark jack pine thicket. It was like it was getting towards dusk. Chased him in there and kind of were getting. We didn't have a dog at the time, it was just my friend and I. And we were getting to the point where felt like we probably weren't going to see him. But I was always kind of like, probably like you, Tim. I always wanted to go around the next corner, that next bush, and just just see what I could find. And about the point I was going to turn around, this grouse flushed and complete, you know, reaction, no, no thought involved, just brought the gun to my cheek killed it and when the when the bird fell I was more surprised than you know than anybody I couldn't believe I actually hit this grouse and walked up there and found it that was that was the first grouse I shot on the wing and I remember that pretty vividly
1: well I can tell by your recounting of it that that's an indelible memory (laughs) absolutely
0: yes yes I can I can honestly see the trees I, I know exactly where I was who I was with I mean yeah it's uh it's something I won't forget
1: Absolutely. There's there's actually a chapter in the book called First Bird, and it's about that. It's actually uh, chapter 21, and it's all about the, the indelible memory of taking your first grouse on the wing. And it's that's a such a very special uh, occurrence. It it can be life changing. It it introdu- introduces you to a a whole cadre of uh, upland hunters and friends and a discipline that's really really special.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's very true. So. Did you guys have bird dogs when you were younger, Tim? Uh, my granddad
1: had bird dogs before, uh, a lot of birds, mainly setters, before I became okay. of age to hunt. Uh, but then we were, when I was of age, we were hunting over beagles. But our beagles would uh, work grouse and woodcock both and you know flush them. And uh, once in a while they'd get on a pheasant. And back in those days, it's interesting that when beagles start trailing a pheasant, they, instead of barking or howling, you know, howling, baying like they do, they'll start yip, 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 yip yipping. Yep. So we always knew when a bird was coming up, and we uh, we took a lot of birds over those beagles.
0: <laughs> and at what point did you start getting into bird dogs yourself, start getting them when you're, I imagine that was when you were a little bit older?
1: Yeah, when I got out of the military, I was um, drafted into the Vietnam era, and um, I actually got selected to serve in the Old Guard at Arlington Cemetery in, the, in Fort Myer, Virginia. It's quite an honor when I came home from uh, the the uh, military service, I was still hooked on grouse hunting, and I knew I needed a dog. And my first dog was a tr- really wonderful Weimaraner. dog would hunt any- anything from quail to ducks to grouse to pheasants, you name it, water retrieves. He was absolutely an amazing dog. And that progressed after he passed. I had a short time there without a dog where I hunted with friends who had uh, almost exclusively Britney's, So it wasn't very long. I was hunting over Britney's and did that until just this past August when our, our last Britney passed away.
0: And the dogs are absolutely ever present in the book and the stories that you tell in the books. And I know that's an important piece of the upland hunting picture for you. You also had a, an interesting career. You were a conservation officer. Is that correct, Tim?
1: Yes. And that's what, that's one of the great things that benefited my hunting, um, in, in early, uh, I became a conservation officer at age 30, and there's two very important things that happened uh, there. Uh, one happened in the, in our training school, Pennsylvania, The Pennsylvania Game Commission has the. Uh, uh, there may be another one. That was the only conservation officer training school, exclusively for that, in the United States at the time. Uh, that career led me to uh, working in the field in very good grouse and deer country. Uh, tremendous woodcock habitat here where I live in, in South Central Pennsylvania, and because of we uh, were able to make our own schedules, I was able to hunt pretty much a little bit some some portion of uh, all, almost every day during bird season because I worked an extensive amount of hours, but I could always take a couple hours to the dogs and I to don the hunting gear and go into a game lands or somewhere and uh, work some birds. So I I probably hunted more days than most hunters are able to hunt.
0: Yeah, I know a few people like that where you had the ability where of course you're you hear often game wardens and conservation officers, you know, they get into that because for the most part, they usually have a love for the outdoors, fish, game, wildlife. But oftentimes they're really busy when the rest of us want to be out in the woods hunting, and I'm sure that was no different for you, but because you were, you're already in the woods oftentimes, you know, it's, it would be nothing to take an hour or two to get out and hunt. And that's, you're already in, in the right spot, which is certainly helpful.
1: Yeah. And the area I worked was uh, our main focus on, on patrol and, um, out law enforcement was deer poaching. We had a tremendous problem sure. with deer poaching and I spent 30 years in the field in our organization, the game commission. The only promotion was into an office well that was the last thing I wanted to do. It was every day I was in a in a state car with a Air Gas credit card, and my dogs guns and cameras every day of my every day of my life for 30 years. <laughs> so that put me in the woods. And I had plenty of time to take a, an hour or two off and in some periods, sometimes it only took a half hour to to bag some birds.
2: Sure.
1: But uh, the other thing that uh, happened with me during the years with the game commission is the uh, people in the main office knew that i had good dogs and good habitat and they would use me to entertain visiting dignitaries to to guide bird hunters so they've got an awful lot of experience just guiding uh, some serious some serious upland hunters
0: when did photography enter the picture for you was that something that you had an interest in for a long time is that something you picked up later in life or how did that work tim
1: uh I played with brownie cameras out when I was a kid. I was a, a box camera kid at uh, well, probably 12, 13 years old, and progressed from there to uh, later in life. I was sitting in a tree with a a bow and arrow, and a, uh, a Fred Bear bow and recurve bow, waiting for a deer to come by. And this beautiful red fox walked by and looked at me. And I'd been sitting up there for a couple of hours and. The sun glinted off of him, and his eyes lit up, and I thought, man, I wish I had a camera. So at that point, I sold the bow and bought a Minolta camera, and then eventually moved into Nikon cameras. And when I went into the Game Commission at age 30, they realized that I was uh, an avid photographer, and they, for years, supplied all my uh, film and processing. So I supplied a lot of the photo- photographies for the Game Commission. And uh, later in life, you know, went to outdoor writing and selling photography and even retail sales of it. So, you've pretty much all my life.
0: Yeah, you've definitely had a history of figuring out how to weave your passions into your work and and making use out of that, both for your personal enjoyment and study, but also to the benefit of your career which is which is pretty interesting and that's how i think a lot of people find success in doing that your photography is definitely something that that was my first exposure to you as a as a member of the rough girl society and an avid reader of covers magazine your photography tim flanagan has been featured in the Rough Grouse Society magazine for years. And it's, you know, usually if there's a stunning image, there, there are a lot of people that take great photos of Rough Grouse and Woodcock and, and the Rough Grouse Society magazine, Covers magazine, features a lot of them, but oftentimes... If I see a very stunning picture of a Rough Grouse or a Woodcock, I it's it's not uncommon to see that being a Tim Flanagan photo. So and I know that you uh you're very generous with your photos and and for Rough Grouse Society to to use them. So I certainly uh I certainly appreciate you making that available and putting it out there for people to see because another thing you talk about in your book is, you know, your knowledge and your passion for the birds really deepens your appreciation as an upland hunter, and that's something that I wholeheartedly agree with. And I think photography is one of those unique ways that people can really, really deepen their appreciation for these birds, Tim. Well,
1: that's correct. And uh, Aldo Leopold said that the uh, he christened these birds is physically marvelous, and they are, they are indeed that. And I, I personally believe that the more you know about something, the more you care about it, and the more you want to see it prosper. And uh, and the more efficient a hunter you are, the more you know about uh, rough grouse. And that's what this book is about. It's encouraging people to um, understand the natural history, learn and understand the natural history of the birds, both grouse and woodcock. And then apply that to not only make them a better hunter, but more importantly, uh, deepen their appreciation of them and their care for them.
0: Absolutely, is the spring one of your key photography times? Because obviously grouse are hitting drumming logs, and I think you, I think you get out pretty avidly when you can, and, and try to get out and take spring pictures. Have you been, uh, have you been doing that this spring? Have you been successful yet?
1: Yes, but our our, our grouse are, ex- I'm doing it very much the, this spring, but uh, looking very much, and not finding much. Okay. Our grouse here have really taken it on the nose from West Nile virus, and uh, I have special. Uh, backwoods areas that I look at, and three years ago, almost any morning or evening, I could see eight, ten, twelve grouse. Now, if I see one every third day, I'm doing well. So, it's uh, photography right now is extremely difficult here in south central Pennsylvania. It's a little better in north central, and I'll be going up there soon. But uh, photography of grouse and woodcock is extremely challenging. And years ago, as the numbers of grouse started to drop off, I put the shotgun away. I just couldn't kill them anymore. And uh, it's the challenge of capturing a good image of a grouse or a woodcock is, is actually much greater than shooting one. And it's very, very satisfying. It's also a great way to learn the birds intimately.
0: I absolutely believe that. I want to I ask you a couple questions about photography. But first, I guess I would like to, I don't want to overlook this. Given your extensive experience in that part of the country, you being a conservation officer, spending tons of time in the woods, you've hunted these birds a lot. You've seen that habitat change or not change over the years. I hear about things coming out of Pennsylvania, basically as a Rough Grouse Society member and talking to the people that I talk to. West Nile virus is one of those things. And I think Pennsylvania is kind of at the leading edge with Lisa Williams doing research. And there's been some great information coming out of there. But what have you seen? Tim, as far as grouse habitat and rough grouse populations out there over the years. I mean, do you see a, a real drop off in active management? What other factors have you seen from your experience that you think are affecting the population or anything you care to comment on, really?
1: Yeah, I believe the greatest thing affecting the population right now is the West Nile virus because we have lots of habitat. Yeah. We really do. We've got lots of cutover areas, move uh, on state forest and, and state game lands. Uh, just give you an example of uh, how important habitat is. Back in 1976, I was a young conservation officer, and I was assigned to attend a uh, a banquet. It was a rough grouse, uh, more of a more of a meeting than a banquet, and it was quite the uh, quite the display of everything grouse. This room looked like a museum to the grouse. Uh, almost a shrine to the grouse. And the speaker that day was Dr. Roger Latham. Dr. Latham was uh, a hero, a personal hero of mine. And um, he was a wildlife manager for, chief wildlife manager for Pennsylvania for years. And he was speaking about habitat. And at the end of his speech, one person asked him, and he had mentioned that grouse and white white-tailed deer come, they compete directly for habitat, which is exactly right. They, they probably most, Directly uh, competition or competitors than any other two species in, in our habitat, eastern habitat. And one fellow asked him, said, "How far would we have to reduce our deer herd to to get our habitat back in line for grouse?" He bowed his head a little bit and looked up and sort of bit his tongue and he said, "We practically have to wipe it out." Well, his truth of his statement was proved back in the seventies when the gypsy moth just completely denuded the oak forest all the way down through the Appalachian Mountains. And what that did was it removed the forest canopy so sunlight could reach the ground. And in the aftermath of that and the salvage cutting of timber to save the oak lumber, we had habitat explosions all down through the mountains. There was grouse and deer habitat everywhere, and both populations exploded in numbers. And as that habitat then changed into pole stage and later into... Pulpwood stage, the the numbers of both grouse and deer had to be reduced. Well, they reduce the grouse reduced themselves automatically because they just didn't have the habitat.
2: Sure.
1: So that that's proven not science. It was actually seen here on the ground. We still have the habitat, but we don't have the birds. And it has to has to be to be that widespread. And as pervasive as it is, it has to be the virus.
0: So I, I just want to clarify something, because I've often heard that this is maybe something that we say over here, but usually what's good for rough grouse is good for deer. Is that essentially what you mean? Because you said that deer and rough grouse are competing, but I, I traditionally I haven't seen them as competitors. I usually see them as what's good for grouse is good for deer. Is that what you're saying, or is there a way that you think deer and rough grouse compete for resources?
1: Yeah, they both, they both eat the same things, occupy the exact same habitat. Habitat.
2: Yeah.
1: Early successional forest puts uh, food down where deer can reach it. Yeah. You know, we've got, where you cut one oak tree down, you may get uh, 20 uh, root suckers come up. Right. Or maybe it comes up in black birch. Well, that's just a wonderful habitat for deer and for grouse. Yes. Grouse, grouse and deer both are herbaceous eaters through most of the year. The grasses and forbs. And then, it it, and soft mass, but then as soon as it goes into, transitions into winter, actually in about November, they both convert over to browsing, where the grouse are budding, and actually, if you really pay attention to what's in grouse crops, the buds often contain a half inch or so of uh, the stem of the tree, so they're actually eating the uh, terminal buds and lateral buds, but the stems of the tree, just like the white-tailed deer do. Sure. So if the habitat is good for deer, it's good for grouse and vice versa.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Okay, yeah, that's that was certainly my understanding of it. Before we move on from that, what is the status of the, just at a general level, what's the status of the Pennsylvania deer population? Are they doing fine?
1: Uh, fortunately, we have, we have brought it down after the gypsy moths uh, caused the population to explode our uh, management agency was slow to respond with antlerless license and that's how you control yep. deer populations you manage uh,
2: the, the antlerless
1: population the, the adult producing the the adult fawn producers are the ones you really need to target uh Dr. Gary Alt uh, introduced uh, he didn't introduce wildlife management science related to deer but he made it socially acceptable we all knew what the you know we all know what the science is, and how deer eat, and what they eat, and how they propagate, and how their birth, their, their population dynamics, reproduction dynamics. But making that socially acceptable, so that the managers who write the laws and approve of the regulations would say, "Okay, we need to reduce this herd." He 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 uh, engineered a bit of magic there by selling that. So the game commission began then to reduce the deer population, and they've got it fairly well in line with habitat right now it's pretty darn good and uh, the analyst applications are much much more easy to obtain than they were but years ago sure
0: all right tim so how do i capture a photo of a woodcock how do you go about how do you go about finding live woodcock to get photos do you use your dogs or do you have other methods
1: I have used the dogs, and if you, but if, you, uh, if you're using a dog, you have to have one that will, will not flush the bird. Correct. Uh, eventually, um, I had all pointers, and the dogs will point for a while, but eventually, especially if the bird moves, mm-hmm. then they want to flush it, especially a young dog. So you've got to have a dog that will sit and stay, and I've had some that would, would do that. Uh, the other way to, to uh, photograph them is to go into the cover, um, and a great way is to watch the sky dance in the springtime. Watch where the males are performing. Okay. And then in the morning, go into that cover. And they'll perform a, a shorter while in the morning than they do at night. But just at uh, just at dawn, if you see one performing, then go into the cover and hear where he was performing and sit down and just let your eyes wait till they kick, pick up movement. And you gradually move into where you can get some photographs and... Woodcock cover tends to be thick and dark, shady, so you're ending up using, you're forced to use slow shutter speeds. And they're also, in. in the cover is thick, lots of, lots of upright stems, which they prefer. So you've got to get lucky or, or gradually move, and they're fairly tolerant. Once, once you sit very still and they get accustomed to you, they're not going to flush if you move just a little bit. So You just try to move slightly to where you can see through the uh, upright stems to get a clear photograph of them. And watching woodcock uh, probe for worms and feed is just is absolutely fascinating. They're amazing birds.
0: I could absolutely imagine being able to observe woodcock outside of the hunting scenario would be would certainly be interesting to a person like me and obviously to you. I think that would be I think that'd be really fun. So that that does make sense. Get out knowing that they do a little bit of the sky dance in the morning, you go to a, go to a good area, you get, get a bead on a bird by watching him perform, and then you can kind of sneak into that cover and then you know sit and wait, and hopefully they're, they're mosing around. Do you find them kind of just casually moseying around, probing for worms? They're, they're up on their feet moving about at that time?
1: Yes, woodcock are um, generally active all day long. Uh, it's interesting to watch them sleep. They'll, I've watched many of them. and uh, It's more common to see hens than it is that male. When that single male is performing, you know, there's, there's going to be a couple of hens around. When you slip into the cover and you sit down, probably the first one you're going to see is a hen. Uh, little males are loosey little buggers. But uh, <laughs> when you sit there and watch them feed, they'll feed voraciously. You know, They eat almost their weight in earthworms a day.
2: Wow. Eat,
1: and, eat and defecate, eat and defecate. And they'll pull these worms up, and it's just one after another. But suddenly, they'll just stop, turn their head completely around, place their bill straight down their back, and close their eyes. And they'll sit there for usually not more than about 15 minutes, take a nap, go right back to feeding. It's really something to watch.
0: <laughs> Sounds like not a bad day.
1: <laughs> oh, it's absolutely wonderful. <laughs> and uh, if I've occasionally been so close to them that you can actually hear them grunt just a little as they're pulling a worm. Oh, wow. It's really, really something, and there's a there's a lot of information in the book about all the physical adaptations that a that a uh, has to enable him to find worms, and one of them we don't think much about is, uh, they don't even realize trem- There are a tremendous amount of nerve endings in their large feet. They have inordin- inordinately large feet. And often and on if you look at Facebook, you'll see people say this this wood look at this woodcock doing this dance or he's doing his courtship dance, yeah, and what he's actually doing is feeding that uh, that rocking back and forth is the equivalent of seismographic testing okay he's he's stomping the ground trying to make the worm move, and when the worm moves, his feet feel it when his feet feel it, you'll see his head he'll suddenly freeze, and his His or her head will point straight down. and the tip of the bill will be almost on the ground or just lightly touching the ground. He may rock a little bit more, and then suddenly that bill is pushed down in the ground because the tip of that bill is filled with nerves as well. It feels the the worm moving, and the ears of a woodcock are right at the corner of his mouth. So when his bill is down in the ground, his feet are feeling the worm, his nose is feeling the worm, and his ears are hearing the worm Wow! because when when worms move in the soil, they've got a... uh, Sort of a slime around them. They actually make a sound when they move in the soil. So everything about this bird is geared to find worms, and they do it very, very successfully. Even even during snow, they'll they'll use uh, little swampy places or riparian edges to find to find worms. And uh, and and while they're doing that, they have 360 degree vision. Their face is on the ground, but they can see all around them.
0: Right. Wow.
1: They're amazing.
0: You want to talk about deepening someone's appreciation for the bird. I mean, that's, yeah, that is incredible. I know the dance that you're talking about, and I probably could have gathered that, you know, it it had something to do with feeding and, and getting worms, but I would not have obviously been able to explain it as elegantly as you did, Tim. But it's just... Well, you Take a moment to stop and think about what they're actually doing, you know, hearing a worm moving and sensing it with their feet, all their senses directed at that. And then this is the same bird that can turn around and fly 400 miles overnight in their migration. I mean, it's just, it's really incredible.
1: Oh, they're, they are absolutely incredible. And they're challenging to hunt, you know. Yeah. One of the things about their feeding activities that helps us as a hunter is that they, you heard me say, they eat and defecate, eat and defecate. They're almost constantly, every, every few minutes, they'll well, I have to, they'll eliminate, they'll excrete <laughs> what, what looks like a, a, a splotch of white paint on the ground. Yep. If you look closely at it, it looks like the white of an egg with a black yolk. And uh, that, that's worm excretions, and the black is the earth from the earthworm. Well, when, they, when they're when they doing this, they're laying a trail for you and I and our dogs to follow. Yep. When you walk into a woodcock cover, you know, a dog's working his nose, and you're looking for splashings, if you're a savvy woodcock hunter. And fresh splashings, the condition of the splashings, first you want to find them, and then you want to evaluate them. If they're dried up and almost disappeared, just little bits of it, there, they're probably old, and the birds may have moved on. And they can be in and out of a cover in a day's time. You know, here today here they go on tomorrow. But if the splashings are fresh and white and wet looking, you're into birds. And that bird is probably nearby. So we use their habits to help us be effective hunters.
0: Yeah, that's a that's a great point. And that's one of those things where again the observant hunter, which all hunters should be, should use the power of observation. That's one of the what's one of the probably perhaps the most effective tool in our in our tool to observe as we are pursuing the our prey, if you will. If you spend enough time at it, you'll walk into a cover and you might see an area where Maybe the birds are gone, but you might see splash all over, and that's one of those things where you take note of that and you say the woodcock were here. This is cover that they use, and and that's how you learn each time you go out.
1: Well, the, the word observation that you just use is so important. Every bit, everything that you see when you're out there hunting should be an observation, not just a something you saw right and it and you should pay attention to where where did i when you flush a bird you look at that spot intently you know and whether you bagged it or not examine where that bird got up from but grouse or woodcock and learn the cover that they favor each each such memory each such experience makes you a better hunter and these same things can be entered into uh keeping a log you know the type of habitat they're using and the other thing with the here today gone tomorrow uh, Tendencies of woodcock is a woodcock. Serious woodcock hunter should have should have multiple covers that he can check in a day's time.
2: Yeah, you,
1: and you don't pound one cover. You know, you hunt one cover once once a week and then leave it alone. And because we are shooting some native, you know, some local birds as well, breeding yep. birds. But if you don't find birds in one cover, move quickly to another. If you don't find them there, move quickly to another because they, they can be. They're they're where you find them, basically. You see, woodcock are where you find them.
0: So on the flip side of the coin, back on the photography bit, we talked about how somebody might go out and get some pictures of a woodcock walk me through it for rough grouse and let's just for the sake of this example we'll say in the spring are you going out into areas where you expect to find grouse listening for drumming and then uh, sneaking up on a drumming log that i've done a little bit of that and i actually have walked up on a few grouse on their drumming logs but how do you go about trying to get the best photo opportunities on rough grouse
1: well the, the first thing i do is i um I road hunt for active grouse. I drive miles and miles and miles of woodland roads until I see a a grouse that is performing. And in the spring, it's rare to see grouse uh, just when you're walking along a woodland road or a woodland trail in the fall. But in the spring, they want to be seen. They want to perform for the females. And when I'm driving these roads very, very slowly, I'm looking at every log and every stump down through the woods. And any little forest opening, that's a real prime place to look for a grouse in the spring yep. because he wants to come out there and say, look at me, ladies, and puff himself all up and strut <laughs> around and really show off. That's uh, part of his game. And he's also doing that for males. You know, he's, uh, he's dominant in his area, and he wants to look big and bad.
2: Yep.
1: Once once I can spot a bird <laughs> in the forest, I'm going to hide my car and then slip in there and camouflage, and often I'll have a little little makeshift blind with me. And if I can get near that bird's performance area and get the light right, I'll, I'll set up a, a small tripod and throw the camouflage over me and spend the time with him. And it, it takes a lot of time. Sometimes uh, you know he's working in an area, you just get set up and waiting for, to, for him to appear. And that's, that's really true with drumming logs. If you know where there's an active drumming log, you get in there before daylight, well before daylight. And just sit down and get the camera ready and wait, and all of a sudden he'll pop up on that log and, and do his thing. You know, he, he when he's drumming, he's doing two things. He's trying to attract hands, but probably maybe even more importantly, he's proclaiming his dominance over that part of his of Hitler, his world. Yep. that's that's his domain. And often you'll find it though. Uh, at least in the, in the hilly country here. Uh, out in the Midwest where it's more flat, it's, it's a different scenario. But here, uh, our, we hunt mountains. Our grouse have one leg shorter than the other for walking on the hillsides. <laughs> and they tend to select drumming logs where the sound can really good produce, be uh, transmitted down through the valley. Okay, the, It'll be at the edge of a, a ledge, or not a ledge, a, a terrace in the woods, a natural terrace. And that's where he'll uh, produce his sound. And he's he's telling everybody, "Hey, this is this
0: is my mountain." Tim, do you have one leg shorter than the other? From all the days you spent walking up there.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, I often tell people I, I was up in Maine one time hunting with an old fellow up there, and he kept calling me a Flatlander. <laughs> and where we were hunting up there we was flat as a pancake. Yeah. And I said, "Oh man, you got to come to Pennsylvania." I said, "Our grouse are only on the hillsides, and if you miss them, they fly uphill. They never fly downhill." <laughs>
0: yeah a flatlander is definitely something i've been called as a as a minnesota hunter and generally speaking yeah it's pretty flat here i will say the first time i went out to pennsylvania i was headed to the rough grouse society headquarters i was Again, I had just never been there, so it was just ignorance on my part. But I was impressed by the terrain and the topography in the small slice of Pennsylvania that I've seen. And I haven't even been in the backcountry or the woods. But there's some some serious terrain and topography out there.
1: Yeah, Pennsylvania is a heavily wooded state. We have a, a large population. But our population is pretty much confined to the valleys, and the the grouse and the deer have the mountains, and we also have a tremendous amount we have a large national forest, <laughs> tremendous amount of state forest and a million and uh, million and a half acres of state game lands and uh, an awful lot of farms and uh, private lands signed up into open to be open to public hunting so we have vast vast areas to hunt. Uh, birds and white-tailed deer.
0: A couple more questions on the on the photography bit, mainly because I'm, I'm asking out of my personal curiosity here, but how close will you get to... I imagine you have excellent photography equipment, so you don't have to be essentially that close. But if you're going in before daylight on a drumming log, how close to that drumming log will you get? Just as close as you need to to get a clear shot?
1: No. I I, I try to stay as far away from it as I can okay. and have a clear shot because I do not want to disturb that bird. Sure. And probably most of my close-up grouse photographs have been taken with a 500 or 600 millimeter lens. Okay. So you, know, I to, you do not want to disturb that bird. Two things, I want to get the best photograph I can and be able to stop movement if I can, but I also don't want to lead any predators to him sure. or cause or disrupt his activities.
0: Got it. Okay. So I have, I have another question. This is kind of a, it's an observation that I've made over the years in chasing grouse and seeing them on the sides of roads and on trails. And I'm talking about displaying rough grouse. And I'm curious if you will be able to either validate or add some of your thoughts. So I feel like, you know, I've been in the woods enough to s- I see a displaying male rough grouse. He's got his ruffs out. He's got his fan out. And I may be coming along and just see that bird, but I find that more often than not, when the when I see a male rough grouse displaying, there's a hen nearby. And there may be multiple b- birds nearby. There may be a few. And that's very logical that the bird would be doing that. But do you see male rough grouse display when there aren't other grouse in the area? Or do you often see when they actually are displaying, there is another grouse nearby?
1: You're right. They do not display for themselves. Okay. When a grouse is on display, there, there are other birds nearby. Occasionally, I've seen as many as seven birds around them. And almost always, at least one of those observing birds, and sometimes two or three, are competing males. They're okay. young males. Okay. But if you look around, I, I've seen the grouse really strutting and performing in an opening, and there'll be seven hens sitting in the trees all above him
2: wow. and a male
1: or two on the ground. And grouse display; they put on some aggressive displays when there's another male nearby. If you ever see one, when you know when they're all puffed up and their tails flared as wide as he can flare it, and his umbellus is up, his umbrella ruff is up behind his head, if he suddenly stretches that neck out and starts shaking that vigorously straight out, he's after a male. Uh-huh. He doesn't do that to a hen. And you, if you watch them enough, you can tell who he's addressing his display to. And if it's a male, he wants to look aggressive. You know, this is what, this is my place, this is my stage, and these are my girls.
2: Yep. <laughs> so,
1: well, for the hen he's much more laid back and strutting.
0: Sure. Yeah, that's very interesting. That was just one of those observations that I had made where, you know, more often than not, when I saw a displaying grouse I would see another one in the area and I just kind of had drew the conclusion that that was uh, again it's a logical behavior it makes sense but I was curious if you had seen the same thing but that's certainly unique and I, I think it's evident in our our conversation to this point that your knowledge and passion for rough grouse and woodcock it runs very deep and and that is something that is absolutely shared in the book you know there are there are chapters on I wouldn't, I would, it's beyond basic biology of rough grouse, but it's, it's really wholesome in the fact that it covers these birds from not only a hunting standpoint, but from a biological standpoint, the habitat, their needs, the food that they eat, and there are hunting strategies, all of that stuff, which I'm going to dive into some of those questions now, but this is a, this book is, if somebody is interested in rough grouse and woodcock and they're looking for more information, this book is much more than a bunch of beautiful photos of rough grouse and woodcock. There's a ton of information in here as well. So it would, it would honestly make a great book for somebody that's passionate about this stuff or a great gift for somebody that somebody else knows is intrigued by these two birds and wants to learn more. I mean, there's, there's a lot here. So with that, I'm going to transition into a few of the notes and questions that I jotted down from, from my reading of the book, Tim, so we talked about the knowledge. Uh, here, Here's an interesting one. And this is just kind of an example of some of the fun factoids that are in this book. There's an interesting thing that you note about the grouse drumming, the sound of grouse drumming. And for anybody that has approached a drumming log, a grouse drumming on a log, you will, this might make sense to you. Because I know from my experience, you hear a grouse drumming and it sounds like it's far away because it's not very loud. You're hearing that sonic boom. It sounds kind of muffled. And the closer you get, you think it's going to become louder and crisper, but it doesn't. It, I know all the times that I've approached a rough grouse drumming on a log, I always think the bird is further away. And then all of a sudden I see him and I can't believe I'm that close to the bird and the drumming sounds like that because it doesn't really elevate. And it's at, it's at 40, you note in the book that it's about 40 decibels where the rough grouse drumming. And I guess if you want to speak to the sound of rough grouse drumming at all, Tim, you could do that now.
1: Well, it's a it's it's more of a feel yes. against your eardrums. Yep. It's a concussion on your eardrums more so than than hearing, which is basically hearing is that vibration of your eardrums. But the uh, the drumming of a rough grass has a very very much has a ventriloquist quality to it. Yes, it's like the bird is here, but it sounds like he's over there. Yep. And there's uh the odd thing is about this bird not, but the depth perception of our ears. Works with most other things, but it does not work with the pulsation of the of the drumming uh, concussions. I don't know why that is, but it, it it will carry. We we mentioned about him having his drumming while at the edge of a, a terrace, the edge of a drop off. It'll carry down that mountain and sound the same at the bottom as it does if you're sound you're up near him. Right. I don't know how they're able to do that. The other thing the grouse will do they'll really throw you off is he'll occasionally turn about on that drumming log and okay. drum the opposite direction. Not often, but they do that occasionally, and that completely changes the direction of, the, of those concussions. Sure. The value of those concussions is so important, and here's what proves it. ATVs. Many aggressive grouse will come out to respond to the putt-putt-putt exhaust of yep. an ATV. And you'll often see that, especially if you're looking at Facebook. Say, oh, look, at this grouse is.
2: Yep. Al- and almost always, grouse. almost
1: always they're considered to be a hen yep. because they, uh, they don't uh, display the sexual dimorphism. They, they look very much alike, except to the trained eye. It's a, it's a very ventriloquist like sound that's hard to explain, but it is, in my estimation, and actually the first chapter in the book is it's the heartbeat of the forest. Yeah. It yeah. actually sounds like a heartbeat through a stethoscope, and in, in reality, the rough grouse is the canary in the mine uh, is related to a habitat. Absolutely. Yep
0: that's an interesting, if people are like, as you mentioned, if they're on Facebook enough and they're, they're in the same circles that you and I are, they've probably seen those videos of a rough grouse jumping up on an ATV or, you know, what's painted to be uh, a tame grouse. I've even seen stories on local news uh, here in Minnesota, but I think it was, I'm pretty sure it was Lisa Williams either wrote an article or talked about it on a podcast where, you know, this, it's almost a misperception People's, perceive this grouse to be tame. And I've even heard stories growing up. Oh, my, my grandparents have a tame grouse in their yard, and he always comes in. And, and some of that does happen, but a lot of times, I believe Lisa pointed this out, as you did, Tim, it's it a it's a young male that is territorial, and they're not tame. It's just that they're hyper-territorial, and they are not shy about coming up and, and saying hi to the people that are in their territory.
1: Yeah, they're actually aggressive. Yes. They, uh, they, they're looking to kick that... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> invader of their space out
2: yeah.
1: you know that butt putt put is another male and they want to kick him out of there yeah and i have seen these grouse actually well, one landowner invited me to come see one of his bird invariably they're called hens and they called this one pecky becky well pecky becky <laughs> had to be swatted away because she would peck the blood right out of your ears <laughs> she was he was extremely aggressive
2: yeah
1: <laughs> and that's that's common and I've been flogged by grouse when I was laying down in the woods, usually when I'm photographing grouse, I'm sitting or laying in the leaves, you know, not sitting in a in a chair, but down as low as I can get, I want to be on their level and I've actually had grouse flog my head and peck and one and pick the big chunk of skin out of the back of my left hand while I was holding the lens those are Those are interesting situations I'd like to find more of. <laughs>
0: Yeah, it, so I, I kind of got sidetracked myself there a little bit, but where I was going with that, hearing the sound of the drumming, you note in the book that it's it's roughly 40 decibels, and one of the key predators of the rough grouse, the great horned owl, cannot hear below 70 decibels, so they can't hear the grouse drumming, which is just one of those interesting adaptations in nature that I just I found fascinating, and that was something that you had in, included in the book.
1: Yeah, that that is really fascinating because the uh, the rough grouse can be heard. The, the owl can hear the bird walking in the leaves over to the logs. Sure, but he cannot hear him drum because the cycles of the frequencies is below his hearing ability. But uh, the other thing that uh, we don't often realize is that grouse are very active in full darkness. And I, in my career, I was almost always working in the fall, working night patrol, and early spring, working out, out before the. Uh, gobbler hunters get out there before daylight and you hear grouse at three four five in the morning
2: yeah
1: well, what's amazing is they can see they have many more their eyes are extremely large compared to uh, if, if they if we had similar size eyes we'd look like we had soccer balls hanging out the side of our face sure they have 280 degree vision and their eyes have many more rods and cones than our eyes do So they see extremely well and they see very well in in almost total darkness. It's amazing.
0: So that's something that came up in conversation with some friends of mine earlier this week and it's something that I had to experience which I didn't know prior. You mentioned rough grouse drumming all night. Now I've since read um, that mentioned a couple times in in various books. But a friend of mine and his son went out just a week ago and put a drumming, uh, put a trail camera on a drumming log and they got a bunch of pictures of the rough grouse drumming on the log, some really cool shots. But maybe to their surprise, that rough grouse was on there pounding away basically all night. And the same thing happened to me the first time I put a trail camera on a drumming log. I just couldn't believe that that grouse was consistently drumming all night long. And, and uh, during the peak drumming seasons, they will absolutely do that. Which is pretty interesting.
1: Yeah, and I, I'm convinced that uh, grouse copulation, the actual breeding, occurs at night. Okay. I have never, in all the years I've been photographing them, I've been watching them. I've never seen them breed. I do have a picture of a cock grouse trying to mount a hen in the daylight, it's about seven in the morning, and uh, I call it uh, incomplete pass. She just wouldn't stand for it, and all every biologist I've talked to. Have, have verified that they've never seen them breed. Now, you, you may in captivity, you know, grouse are a few, a few propagators do raise some grouse in captivity, but in the wild, it is extremely uncommon, it basically never occurs, that we see them breed in daylight. So that drumming at night is very important to him.
2: Yeah.
0: Beyond the ample information about rough grouse and woodcock, the actual birds, their habitat, their habits, their biology, there is ample information in this book about hunting, shooting, gear, because as a a passionate person about these birds, Tim, you're also certainly a passionate upland hunter, and that drives a lot of what you do. So I found those sections of the book to be quite interesting. One of them, you actually took, kind of a deep dive on was hearing protection. And that's something that's interesting to me. And I'll segue there because we were talking about sounds and stuff. Are you at a point where you are using hearing protection when you're? I know you said you had you haven't shot a bird for a while, but do you still travel and hunt? Are you using hearing protection when you're out there hunting? And if so, what have you found to work? Because this is something that's very interesting to me.
1: No, no, hearing protection is only used when you're practicing. Okay. Uh, you you should shoot thousands and thousands of more shots at clay birds than you ever shoot at grouse. Sure. The the dimension of the hearing dimension that applies in hunting is you must hear the grouse flush Mm -hmm. and uh, most of that chapter really tells us the story about how how handicapped we are if we don't when we don't hear the grouse flush now i have i've experienced uh, and i have diminished hearing in my left ear because that's the ear that's closest to the muzzle if you're a right-hand shooter sure And thousands of shots, Uh, I was a handgun competition shooter uh, for years, but also thousands and thousands of shots on the ski range have impacted that ear. So I have a little problem with depth perception, hearing sounds in the woods. And I have a neighbor who's pretty much lost his hearing, and he told me a a year or so ago, he said, Tim, I'm missing shots at grouse, Not actually not not getting the opportunity to shoot because I don't hear them flush anymore. The first thing that alerts you to, most, actually, very few hunters ever, ever really see a grouse initially flush from the ground. Yeah. We hear it, we see some leaves blow around, and there he is in the air. And he says, I'm not hearing that flush anymore. I'll be working with my dogs, and all of a sudden there's a grouse way out ahead flying away. And so when I was really seriously hunting, I said, I've retired a gun about 10 years ago now. I was meticulous about cleaning my ears and having my ears ready to hear when I went to the woods. Sure. And it's true with woodcock and grouse. Sometimes you'll hear a woodcock just twitter up, and you want to be able to quickly locate that because the depth of perception of our ears then combines with our eyes, and then the shotgun enters the play. Hearing protection when you're practicing, and you should practice a lot. Yeah. If you want to shoot well, shoot a lot. That's vitally important, but in the woods, we need to hear that bird.
0: Yeah. Definitely, it's been talked about at length. You know the split second window of opportunity that you have on these birds hunting the dense covers that they inhabit. It's tough. You need every advantage you can. So hearing, vision, you need all those advantages. And oftentimes, yeah, the especially with grouse because they're going to be standing perfectly still before they flush. You and you mentioned which I've seen a lot of people mention. You know, don't even bother trying to see the birds on the ground. You almost kind of want a loose focus on the area, trying to pick up the first visual that you can. But hearing is absolutely one of the first tip-offs for a lot of people trying to get on a grouse
1: Oh, without question and there's a chapter in the book called killer eyes and it's about how to use your eyes to detect the very first flutter of a wing the quicker you detect it with your eye the quicker you can bring the gun into play yeah and that's it's so vitally important looking for the bird on the ground that's for me the photographer that's not for the gunner (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah. The
1: gunner does not ever need to see the bird on the ground.
0: That kind of leads into another one of the things that I pulled out of this book. And this is something that really resonated with me because I don't know if it's if I'm similar to you in this way or whether this just resonated with me. But I was a grouse hunter long before I was a bird dog person. And I still am today. I'm a grouse hunter first before I am quote unquote a bird dog trainer or anything like that. Right now, I certainly do it for the dogs and they and my dog adds a ton of enjoyment to my grouse hunting, but I'm a grouse hunter and when I'm out there, I am trying to maintain a state of readiness as much as humanly possible throughout the day. And that means keeping the gun in the ready position as much as I can. You know, I'm not I am not the person that's gonna have the gun Broke over my shoulder, waiting for my setter to go on point. That's fine if if other people do that. But for me right now, at this point in my life, I don't hunt that way. I hunt always ready and I will shoot at a bird that my dog doesn't work as long as he doesn't bump it or anything like that. I'll shoot at a wild flush bird because again, I love to hunt these birds, but here's a quote from the book, Tim, and I'll, I'll let you talk about this a little bit, but consistently successful grouse hunters are true optimists who expect a bird under every deadfall while visualizing the bird's escape route. They anticipate a flush with every step of the hunt.
1: I call that the art of being ready. Yep. And uh, I, I'd rather miss the bird than miss an opportunity for the shot. For sure. You know, I don't want to be asleep, and my habits, uh, I, I was a little bit obsessive-compulsive with that with that art of being ready, because I, when I, as soon as I left the car, as soon as I put the bell on the dog and put shells in that little four ten, that gun went to the low-ready position, and it stayed there. Yep. It never moved out of the low-ready position. I, you know, if, if my right hand, my strong hand, which my strong hand was always around the the grip of the the, the stock with a finger over my index finger over the trigger guard. If that hand got tired, I would just support the gun with the weak hand by the forehand and shake that right hand out Yeah. and vice versa. But you never let it out of the low ready position. And as soon as your dog starts to get buried, you see his tail starting to move. You know, we learn to read our dog's body language as soon as you're, if you're approaching even a bit of birdie-looking cover without a dog, you need to come to pretty much the high-ready position and be ready, thumb on the safety, and ready to react. And expect the bird. You know, you, If you're not expecting a bird, you don't even think about it, you, you react much slower.
2: Correct.
1: But if you visualize that bird coming out of there and you walk up to a piece of cover and you stop and make a step, if the bird doesn't flush, you stop, and make another step, again. The stop and go is a you know a typical grouse flushing yep. uh, technique for for hunters. But you should expect that bird and not not be asleep, and keep the gun at the ready position all the time. And the other thing you do is, is keep your vision trained as well. We, we just talked about not looking for the bird on the ground. When you walk into a point, you know, you circle around in front of your dog to flush that bird, your vision should be uh, about shoulder level above the ground and wide-angle view. Just let your, go, let your eyes relax to a wall-eyed view, and the first flush of feathers will catch your eye. And the same thing when, if you're hunting without a dog, when you approach a piece of birdie looking cover, you know, we don't walk every foot, every square foot of ground on the mountainside, but we go from one patch of briars to the other patch of blow down of a tree. And when we're approaching those, we need to have that vision set to wide angle view above the ground. Yeah, and be expecting that bird.
0: Yeah, that was another uh, another quote I pulled out of the book, which I found very interesting. Again, resonated with me. It was, grouse covers usually contain a few sweet spots where all birds' needs are met. And that's one of those things where, you know, not every cover is 100% prime time. I mean, we all, we're all looking for that. But as you get to know a cover and as you get to know grouse... You begin to walk through these covers, and you just—it's—it's a, it's a sixth sense where you look over and you say that is a grousey spot. You know, it's a tangle of brush, and you can—it's—it's it's maybe the edge of a swamp or the edge of a waterway, and you know that's a grousey spot. You're going to go over there. You're going to make sure the dog gets in there, and that's how you maximize your opportunities and find the most birds.
1: Yeah, and there's a, there's a couple of points we should make on that. When you flush a, a grouse, you should after. That occurrence, whether you bag it or not, you should immediately assess the conditions of that cover right there. You know what, even the wind direction, the yeah. time of day, because grouse, uh, in, importantly, the time of day, grouse circulate through their cover much like turkeys do, almost on a schedule. And um, note, note that cover. And if you if you think about it, when you get home, put that in your logbook. You should have a, a maintain a da- daily logbook. The other thing that you can do to learn birdie cover is either hunt with a, a savvy old grouse hunter. Watch how he walks. Watch the covers he walks. He doesn't walk just to meander around the woods. He walk, he goes from one birdie spot to another.
2: Yeah,
1: and you'll see him come alert, bring that gun up, and be ready when he approaches a birdie spot. The bird dog does the same thing for you. A bird dog is just not going to hunt a piece of open woods. He's going to go to each spot of birdie cover. Each spot that he can find, and you, if you watch him, he'll circle downwind of it. And that that should put you on alert. And the other way to learn grouse usage of cover is to, to spend some time following grouse tracks in the winter time. Sure, as grouse tracks are absolute indelible intelligence. It tells you everything about his world, how he how he uses it. Yeah. So those are all learning
0: tricks. Yeah. Yeah. One of the great things about upland hunting and, and really for any hunting this matter is you have the, you have the freedom to approach it the way that you want to approach it. And that's going to be different for each person. So again, some of these things where, you know, being hundred percent ready and ready to shoot at any grouse that flushes, those are things that I do, but I know there are other folks that, you know, they want to have the gun on their shoulder and they want to follow their dog and they want to walk in on a, on a point. And that's all they're concerned about. That's totally fine. But again, if you're. If your goal is to get as many shot opportunities that readiness and and that approach that hunter's mentality as you're walking through the woods can be very critical to success
1: well nick there's um there's just too many miles between shooting opportunities yeah to not be to not be ready you know if you just to just stumble along with a, gir- a gun cradled in your crook of your arm or hanging down at your arm's length is foolish because there's so many miles between uh, in my uh, logbooks, I usually found that I I was treated to one good makeable shot out of about an average of eleven grouse flushes. Okay. Well, if if you just uh, if you diminish that at all, you add many more miles to yes. your walking for the day. Yeah. You know. So you want to be ready at all times, and and mentally ready, not just physically ready. Mentally ready.
0: What other things make it into your your logbook, Tim? I assume. Birds flush, contacts. Any what? What other things do you do? You jot down, or did you jot down from your hunts? Uh,
1: prevailing winds. You know how to, how to hunt a cover, and sometimes um, it's best to. We we have a habit uh, of going back to covers that we like, uh, even though we may have seen. Well, you know we ought to hunt that mountainside someday. We're out there. We uh, you end up going back just out of habit to covers where you remember flushes sure. and a lot of memories remain. But in those covers, sometimes we we hunt them, almost always we will hunt them in the same direction. And one of the covers that we hunted, my friends and people I guided, we always hunted at the same sort of clockwise route. It was a long oval clockwise, about a half mile each way. Wonderful cover called the honey hole. One of the best things I did there was reverse that circle one day. And the hunting was, the action was completely opposite. And it also benefited me because the grouse that often flushed at one end of that would fly into posted country. I pushed them the opposite way, back into where I could hunt them. And it's uh, anything like that, changing direction. Uh, The logbook should include even where to park, the landowner's name, uh, you know where there's good water for the dog. and most most of my grasswood cover covers had streams. I don't have to worry about that much. But in drier climates, you need to know where you can get your dogs cooled off and get them watered. Yep. And any little thing like that. And uh, perhaps uh, if you encounter uh, a state worker that, that works on habitat or at the local game warden, talk to them. Get as much information as you can and get the contact numbers for them. There's just so much you should have, especially if you're traveling, you should know where the the contact information for the local vet, so you can if your dog gets hurt, and they often do
2: Definitely. you can get yeah. him
1: help quickly anything anything about the cover that helps you put a bird in a bag should be recorded and uh, just touching on it briefly, they are habits uh, they have a habit of circulating through their cover on a fairly predictable schedule, and if you hunt certain covers often. You'll realize that. You'll start to see a pattern.
0: Yeah. That reminds me of a I'm thinking of a specific cover as you talk about that. In it's one that I've found in the last handful of years and it's been very good to me. It's a it's a shorter one. It's probably about a sixty minute hunt, but it's a place that I can get to after work and know that my dog and I are probably going to get into a couple of birds. But I it's the way it's set up. It sets up very well for me to make a nice loop through the woods, and I kind of know what I'm in store for, and I always go the same way. So I've, I've got to have to remember this fall to mix it up a little bit and walk the other way just to see what happens one day.
1: Yeah, it, it will help, that's for sure.
0: One other thing that I want to ask you about because I found it pretty intriguing you mentioned in the book about you are mindful of the fact that if possible, you want to shoot males because it's going to have a, <laughs> a lesser impact on the population. And you go as far as saying you mention at least reference identifying the sex of a rough grouse on the wing, which is something that most people don't normally think of because they look so similar that obviously legally they can't really write the regulations that way. But, I'm curious if you could talk about that a little bit and how you attempt to identify sex on the wing to try to shoot fewer hens and more males.
1: Yeah, this is a favorite. So I was just thinking about trying to include that. I'm glad you went there. Um, I'll tell you how that that experience started for me. I mentioned Dr. Roger Latham earlier. Yep. He was a, he was a personal hero of mine. He was an, an absolute expert. Uh, on wildlife and habitat, and he was a tremendous photographer. He hunted with a 410. was respected as a tremendous wing shot, natural wing shot. When I was in the Game Commission Training School at age 30, the day he came to speak to us as a guest speaker, I was sitting in the front row directly in front of the podium, and here stands my hero. And at one point in his speech, he said, when I hunt woodcock, I choose to shoot only male woodcock. Oh, my God, I couldn't believe he said that.
2: Because
1: I had killed hundreds of woodcock with it, and that's what we did. He said, when I hunt grouse, I choose to shoot only male grouse. And he just crashed, in my estimation. (laughs) Immediately thought him a braggadocious, you know what? Well, that spurred a challenge. And that's really what caused me to study grouse for the rest of my life. I'm still studying them. I wanted to know if he can do that Why can't I do that? Or can I do that? And what I learned was his real mention, his real message with that was not to brag, but it was to tell this young, would-be conservation officer, learn to see, young man, because we see with our minds more so than our eyes. You know, our eyes only catch light. They gather light. They don't tell us a thing. Our minds tell us if we're looking at a classic Chevy or a classic Ford. Yeah, a Chevy, that's a Pennsylvania word. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know, <laughs> If there's two classic cars there, we know the difference between the Ford and the Chevrolet because we know it. Well, the, the flight characteristics of Grouse and Woodcock are both quite different between the sexes. And with, with Grouse, it, it is, there's a number of things, but first and foremost is the profile. A hen grouse has a short stubby tail, she's a smaller bird than a big male. You will get if even if you don't try to shoot selectively, you will shoot only five to twenty percent hens because they are more elusive than the male grouse. Interesting. Most shots at grouse happen at males because they're more bold and they'll stand their ground, especially young of the year. They're nuts. You know, they're they're invincible. <laughs> they're like teenagers. Yeah. But uh when a grouse flushes, the, the first thing you see is the size, the length of the tail and the silhouette. A female grouse looks like her little tail comprises a quarter of her entire length, but a male bird looks like his tail comprises a full third of his length. He's got this tremendous tail. His body looks small compared to his tail. And its grouse uh, hens fly with a little more rapid wing beat than the than the uh of the male, and they typ- typically fly lower and straighter through the cover than a male grouse does.
0: The females will be lower and straighter, often. Okay. Yes,
1: quite okay. often because they're so secretive. Sure. Actually, is when they detect us in their woods, and I, I'm convinced grouse know when we close the door in the truck. But when they detect us in the woods, the hen slinks away, way ahead of the dog, and that's one of the reasons you'll get uh, a lot of what you say are false points. And yep. I never believed my bird dogs would lie to me, but there were occasions where they'd lock up one point, And that's where a hen had, she slinked away and then escaped. Yep. And they do that much more commonly than does a male. Now, shooting selectively on woodcock is, is really easy because males are so much smaller. They're about a third the size of the hen. Yep. And the other thing is, the first birds that come down through in the migration and back through in the spring are hens. When in early season, they're shooting almost exclusively hen woodcock. The hen woodcock is a bigger bird with a longer beak, wider wingspan, lighter in color. The males are small, short beaks, and dark. The wing beat of a male is extremely rapid, little short wings, and even the sound of the twitter is different. Interesting. Than the hen. The hen has the hen can have a wingspan up to 18 inches wide. And often mm-hmm. you'll read that uh, woodcock are, are weak flyers with little mm-hmm. short wings, and nothing could be further from the truth. You know they can fly from the,
2: <laughs> the right. northern
1: Canada, clear to Louisiana and yep. back, yep. and do it for eight or nine years. <laughs> yeah. But the difference, the flight pattern difference, and even the sound between woodcock hens and females is dramatically different. Another indicator is that, told you how the females migrate first, the females tend to prefer to land in and feed in more open cover. Uh, a hillside is covered with hawthorn in our in our area. One of my areas is very open. It's a receding, a rec- uh, re- recurring uh, uh, old farmstead. To the right side of that is very old hawthorn, much more mature, the males will land in the mature hawthorn, the females in the more open, younger hawthorn. Females tend to, to prefer younger cover than males. I don't know why that is, but that's another way to uh, sort of understand what you might be getting when you enter that type of habitat.
0: So the the woodcock, I can wrap my mind around that one a little bit because I feel like with some knowledge in my head, I have I can tell. I knew that the hens were bigger, and oftentimes I can see a bird and and come to the conclusion that that is a hen because it's a much larger bird. Another interesting thing that I read that I feel like I've seen play out. I wouldn't. I wouldn't. Uh, my confidence level would be limited in this. But I read from I believe it was Steve Smith, former editor of the Pointing Dog Journal. He talked about how he believed uh, through his experience that female woodcock tend to do the more helicopter flight where they rise to the top of the cover and then take off at the top. And he felt that the younger, or not younger, but the smaller male birds were the ones that you typically saw that would have the more erratic weaving lower flight through the cover. And I've certainly seen that play out in the woods, whether or not those birds are, I I can't actually say whether or not those birds were male or female, but I, I certainly feel like some of the bigger birds I tend to see do that more helicopter approach and the smaller ones are lower and weaving through the cover. Do you see that, Tim, or do you have any thoughts on that?
2: Yeah,
1: I tend to agree, but uh, so many times I, I read that woodcock always flush straight up, pause above the cover, and then straighten out and fly away, and that is so much baloney.
0: Yeah, that's not true.
1: Uh, I think that the birds that do that, often that's a hen, Yeah. but often those are birds that are have just uh, dropped into strange cover overnight, and the birds that will zip away through cover can be male or female because they know the cover. They know right where they're going. But a bird that's just dropped into cover, especially if it's fairly thick, they're going to pop up over it and take a quick view of, hey, where do I want to go? I think that is more of an indicator of a recently arrived bird in strange cover.
0: Gotcha. Yeah, always fun to, of course, talk about those things with fellow hunters and people that have spent time in the woods. It's you know we can, we can draw conclusions and make assumptions on our based on our observations, and uh, that's that's one of the fun parts about it.
1: Well, the other the other thing about looking at these birds, we're out there gunning them. And they, you know, I should have mentioned is when you're looking at these birds close enough to determine sex, you should also be looking at exactly where you want that shot pattern. Yeah, you know, and I I try to shoot my birds in the head. You know, I want to look at their eye or the beak. You know, woodcockies always try to shoot the tip of the beak, and uh, that gives you a bird that's dead in the air. And it's a little more difficult for a dog to find when they fall. But uh, my one of my most common hunting companion for years was Dr. Al Geis from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. He was an expert on woodcock. matter of fact, he's the man that started the woodcock wing bee. Okay. And hunting with Doc was an experience. He was a tremendous wing shot, but he also knew everything about that bird. You can imagine, and he would always call the uh, sex of the bird. And he, he and I, it was a habit. A big hen, bang, you know. And uh, he, he was never wrong. So we, we competed doing that, and always had fun with it. But when you're looking at the bird close enough to determine its sex. You should also be able to shoot as accurately as possible. Yep. Because our our eye is, for an upland shooter, our eye is a gun sight. It has nothing to do with the bead. It's all about our human eye. Where we look is where we're going to shoot.
0: Yep. That's a great point. We've had some episodes on this podcast where we've we've interviewed shooters and talked about instinctive wing shooting. And uh, for anybody that maybe is new or they're getting exposed to upland hunting and they hear Tim say, you know, you're trying to shoot the tip of the beak, that might sound almost you know, how could you do that? How could one expect to do that? And the key is not to expect to be able to see the beak on every bird, but the concept is that the more narrow your focus and laser-like your focus on that bird, as best as it can be for that example, the better you're going to shoot. So the concept and the theory there is, is absolutely sound in instinctive wing shooting.
1: Yeah, that's correct. And there's there's a lengthy discussion on how to use your eyes and, and shoot and, and understanding the button. Complete familiarity with the pattern of, that your gun throws. Yeah. You must know where the pattern Every time I shot at a bird, I visualized that pattern, where it was going to be. And what, what really enforced that for me was through years of international skeet. My mentor and instructor was a friend who, he was an amazing link. he rarely ever missed a bird. And if he pulverized a clay bird, he thought that was terrible. He only ever wanted to break the leading edge off the bird. So he always looked at the bird. He he instructed me years ago, pretend there's a word written on the front of that clay, and you want to read that word. Sure. Read that word and shoot it off of there.
2: Yep.
1: So when I would really hit a bird hard, he'd say, hey, not much for that to eat. And if you broke just the leading edge off, he'd say, "Ah uh, we can have that one for dinner." yep <laughs> so, it's, uh, it's really important where we look and where we point that gun because we, we're going to point at what we look at.
0: Yeah, that's absolutely correct. Well, we've talked for uh, well over an hour here, Tim, and this has been a lot of fun. And I can honestly say that we have literally scraped the surface as far as what is inside this book. You know, beyond the beyond the photography, there are stories, there's information, there are tidbits, there's facts, there's all kinds of stuff in this book. I I would highly Highly recommend it to anybody that's interested in grouse and woodcock biology, habitat, hunting. It's kind of all-inclusive. It's hundreds of pages. There's all kinds of photography. I mean, it's it looks great on the coffee table, but you can pick it up and pour over it. It's a phenomenal book, Tim, and I commend you for yeah. bringing that to the upland hunting community and the grouse and woodcock enthusiasts out there.
1: Well, thank you, and I I really ought to discuss the the real purpose of this book. And the book was the. Uh, This was the idea of the publisher, Mr. Tom Perro. I present what's in this book as an in-depth slide program to many organizations and have done it through the years. And invariably, after the presentation, somebody said, you have a book. Where can we buy a book on all this information? (laughs) Well, Mr. Perro was here visiting. We met him through illustrating the book that he published, Wild River Press published, called A Passion for Grouse. Okay. Yep. And I, I have the all the live bird images in that book, and the cover are my photographs. That's how we met. And uh, his idea, this book was his idea. And my purpose for the book is to try to impart as much knowledge about these birds and about how to hunt them as I possibly can, because the more we know about anything, the more we care about it. it so uh, my goal is to increase the appreciation of, of the hunter, not just increase his ability to kill a bird, but increase his appreciation and help him realize how wonderful this sport is, how blessed we are to be able to do it. And there's a, there's a tactical, a tactile response when you hold a rough grass in your hand. Yeah. When you realize how wild this bird is or how wild this woodcock is and where it may have come from, you can touch and feel the essence of wildness. And the more you know about them, the more you respect that, and the more you'll be concerned for their management and their propagation. So that's the goal.
0: Well, I think you nailed it, Tim. I have a newfound appreciation for my copy of A Passion for Grouse because I uh, I had forgotten that was a Wild River Press book, and I did not know. I, I maybe read it at the time, but I hadn't picked it up in a while. I didn't know those were your photographs, so I will uh, I will look at that book more fondly now, knowing that those are your photographs in there, Tim. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
1: Yeah, you'll see my name on the cover. We've also illustrated uh, Turkey Men for him and Why Women Hunt.
0: Okay, uh, I have that book as well.
1: We've supplied images for those books. And Tom and his uh, graphic designer, Greg Smith, are absolute wizards in producing top notch books. I mean, th- their books are works of art. Yeah, they are. Uh, and be honest with you when i first received this this book the actual copy of the book in hand i was astounded it's
0: beautiful yeah it really is it really is i got it here on my desk next to me and it uh it probably won't leave the desk and if it does it won't be too far away it's it's one that you could pick up and and page through about any day of the year it's a good one i commend you on it tim where can people go where where should they go to look at a copy and and purchase one
1: uh, it's all, all sales are through Wild River Press and if they just Google Wild River Press uh, the uh, promotion, promotion from the book pops right up on the, on the opening page and it's, uh, it's well worth it's not a cheap book but it's well worth the price. If you're at all interested in grouse and woodcock this is a must have publication it actually is probably the, uh, the most concentrated list of information on all of the natural history of these birds that I know of
0: I will be sure to drop a link to Wild River Press in the show notes. If folks have questions about the book or they wanted to get in touch with you, Tim, could I make a could I make an email or something available to folks and and do that as well?
1: Oh yeah, my email is tim hyphen natureexposure written as all one word at Comcast c o m c a s t dot net. Okay, and uh, we all, we also have a website called natureexposure.com. dot com.
2: Okay, and perfect. You can
1: find our, our our photographs on Fine Art America. If you go to Fine Art America. We'll soon have every photograph that's in the book listed on or posted on Fine Art America. Just go to faafineartamerica.com and type in my name and you'll soon see every image that's in that book, plus a lot of other graphs and woodcock. Many other images.
0: Yeah, I've had the pleasure to, to look through some of your archives, Tim, and see a lot of your photographs. There's, there's definitely uh, there's some fun stuff in there and, and great photos to look at. So I'll do a roundup of all those links and make sure we capture them all and make those available to people so they can find the resources that they're looking for. Tim, I sincerely thank you. We've had some good conversations over the last couple of weeks. I, I hope this won't be our last. This one has been enjoyable. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me and the listeners of the Project Up Podcast. I really appreciate it.
1: Well, let's let's uh, before we close, I mentioned the Rough Grass Society. I've been honored to to work with them for years, and uh, you'll read a lot about the Rough Grass Society in this book and their work with habitat and their dedication to this resource uh 100 of these books has been donated to the Rough Grouse Society to be added to their banquet packages. If we ever get banquets open back up right. with all this <laughs> quarantining, but uh, the Rough Grouse Society has 100 of those books that are available when you go to a banquet. If you don't get a chance to to get one through Wild River Press, you might want to find one at a banquet.
0: Well, there's probably no better way to end than that than uh, talking about appreciation of Rough Cross and Woodcock than to mention Rough Cross Society, American Woodcock Society. We're big supporters here, and, of course, I'm a member and uh, and a loyal follower of the organization. Uh, I did see today that they just launched their national online auction, obviously, in light of everything that's going on. They're thinking of other ways to um, help continue to raise funds for conservation. I haven't had a chance to check to see if one of your books made that auction but uh perhaps there's a copy in there
1: Uh, there there probably is i just recently personalized six of those books and send them back to the rgs uh so that I, i expect that they will show up in the auction
0: So if somebody wants to get a copy of this book and make sure that those dollars go straight to conservation, they can absolutely go check that out or at least attend an upcoming Rough Grouse Society, American Woodcock Society event when those things begin to hit the calendar, which I will hopefully be doing one later this year, but... Time will tell, Tim. So, thank you for donating those to RGS AWS. Thank you for joining us today on the podcast. I hope you have a great rest of your day, Tim.
1: Thank you. It's been an honor. Have a great one.
0: Thank you, Tim. Take care. Bye-bye. That's it for this episode of the Project Upland Podcast. Thank you for listening, everybody. Quick reminder, the Project Upland Podcast is brought to you by Onyx Hunt, Yukonubo Premium Performance Dog Food, Gumleaf USA, CZ USA, Turnbull Restoration, and Dakota 283 Kennels. Don't forget, you could be next week's winner of the podcast giveaway. All you have to do is leave us a rating, leave the podcast a review in your podcast app, subscribe to the podcast, share the podcast, or send us some feedback or guest suggestion. Thank you for listening, everybody. We'll catch you on the next episode. Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your next Onyx Hunt subscription. Know where you stand with Onyx. Hey everyone, this is Nick from the Gun Dog It Yourself podcast. If you enjoyed this show, then you might want to check out my show as well. We highlight and break down the ins and outs of training your own hunting dog. Whether it's a bird dog or even the occasional hound dog episode, we cover all topics related to hunting dogs. Check out Gundog Dog It Yourself on any podcast streaming platform and hit the subscribe button to be sure not to miss any future episodes.